Thank you for joining us for the online worship service. Um, it is a blessing for us at Kaioki to bring this to you. We are in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. I, I will confess that normally I'm not given to ascribe superlatives to different parts of the Bible. After all, it's all the Word of God. Um, therefore, it's all true. And it all matters, and it is all good for our edification as well as for our spiritual transformation. But with that said, I want to quote a statement um, that is very difficult to disagree with. Someone has said that the greatest book in the world is the Bible. Amen to that. After all, it is God's Word. The greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is Romans. The greatest chapter in that letter is Romans 8. And the greatest verse in Romans 8 is verse 1. Well, uh, like I said, very difficult to argue. We are entering what most commentators and just readers of Scripture, I think, would agree is perhaps the pivotal chapter, not just in Romans, but in all the Bible. If, if, if we understand what is written in this chapter, then we have a grasp of why the good news, why the gospel, there is no shame in it. Why we can stand confidently and affirm the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why is chapter 8 so significant? Well, partly because of, of what it says and, and the realities of what it says. Paul starts, and, and in the opening verses through about verse 4, he, he shows us what it means to live our lives with no condemnation. Then, from about verses 5 through 12, he, he writes about uh, the significance of life in the Holy Spirit and, and what difference it makes in the life of a believer. Then he turns to what it means um, to be in Jesus Christ and how that affects and how it should, it should cause us to view not just our lives, but our future lives as well. Around verse 28, for um, about three verses, he focuses on the assurance of our salvation, why it is so rock solid. And then, beginning in verse 31, he closes out kind of reaching the, reaching the, the, the mountaintop, the peak of, of the spiritual Everest, by giving a series of questions, someone has said, designed to destroy fear and doubt. And that's exactly what happens. That, uh, I, I will probably remind you of this if you're with us when we finally get to a close of our study of Romans 8, that those, those last um, 10 verses or so are, is a passage that I often read in funeral services because they are so sublime and so majestic. 
But today, we are going to look at not ashamed and not condemned and what that means. So we're going to cover all of one verse uh, in our time together today, and that is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So I invite you to uh, get your Bibles or whatever you use to look at Scripture and join me as we read Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this simple and yet profound truth. May we look at it honestly and may we, as we uh, submit to your Holy Spirit, may we allow it to change us, change our understanding of life and how we can approach. So you are good to us. Open our eyes that we see, our ears that we'll hear, and Lord, we will uh, give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. So as we, as we begin, I, I want to address just briefly a technical matter uh, that some of you didn't, didn't notice, but some of you perhaps did. And that is, if you're reading an older translation of, of this verse, particularly the King James Version or the New King James Version, you know, probably noticed, you should have noticed, that your translation adds an extra line to this verse. In other words, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And King James, older translations add the line, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what gives? Uh, why are modern translations, they put a period at the end for those who are in Christ Jesus, and so many older translations add this extra line? Well, to understand is to, uh, why is to, is to seek to understand um, how Bibles have been translated over the centuries. In, in the older and more, and more reliable manuscripts, not translations, manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts, um, that line that's found in King James, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, is not present at this point in Romans chapter 8. Now, that line is true, okay? It's not heresy that, it's, that it is spouting. It's just that it doesn't appear to us that Paul wrote it in this place. He did write it. If you, uh, if you look down to verse 4, the second half of verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, it's like it was moved and, or copied and put at the end of verse 1. So that line is true, and we'll look at it next time um, because it's, it's not only in this chapter, but it's in verse 4. Of, of this chapter. So it begs the question, what happened? Right, right? How did that line that is found in verse 4 <coughs> make its way into verse 1? But interestingly enough, while it's found in the older English translations, it's because it's not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts. 
Um, without getting into too many weeds, the truth is we don't have any of the original letters or books of Scripture. We have copies, very early copies of the original books. And part of, part of biblical scholarship is, uh, is to seek and to find two things. One, the oldest manuscripts, but you'll often, if you're, if you're doing a study of, of this, you want not just that which is oldest, that matters, but you want to find that which is also reliable, the most reliable transcripts. Because what, what happened is over the course of decades and then centuries, uh, these manuscripts were copied into various languages. And uh, sometimes they were copied just into Greek, right? It, taken from the Greek to the Greek. And what we have found is over the course of time, there were in the copying, not in the originals, but in the copying, there were errors made. They don't, they're not, usually they're not profound errors. They're not errors that affect uh, any theological or doctrinal great truth. It's just that they were, and, and usually they're pretty easy to spot. So in terms of this, here in Romans 8, 1, the most plausible explanation as to what happened actually points to the extraordinary wonder and depth of what Paul writes here in verse 1. Um, you can imagine a, a copyist, somebody that's got in front of them a, an ancient copy of Scripture, and they've decided, I want to... There was no printing press at this point in time, so I, I want to make a copy. Maybe to take back to uh, the abbey that this particular uh, priest or monk lived in. Or, but but he, he would start to make a copy. And um, remember, there was no computers, <laughs> no cutting and pasting. You, you had to do it by hand. And when he comes to verse 1... Um, he either gets ahead of himself and accidentally looks at the second half of verse 4 and writes it at the end of verse 1, or maybe more, prob more probable, when he copies verse 1 as Paul wrote it, he's just overwhelmed and he doesn't believe that God could be so gracious that there's no way this truth left in and of itself could be true, that my or his self-efforts are not needed to affirm my salvation or to give me salvation. So he, he, he takes what is true at the end of verse 4, and he just sticks it on the end of verse 1. In other words, he reads, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Verse 1, is, as evidently Paul wrote it, and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Surely I have to do something 
And so he goes, well, let me take who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit and write it there first. And then you come to it again in verse four. Either way, um, we don't know. Uh, We can't be sure. But the good news is God has protected the transmission of his word. And, um, and we have what it seems in all scholarship and study of Romans in its antiquity, we have what Paul wrote. We can be certain as it is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I hope I didn't bore you to death, but I did, I did think it, it, it's interestingly enough to point out, especially to those who may be scratching your head, going, wait a minute, my Bible has an extra line there. Okay? So, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at the consequences of the meaning of there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? And I want to do it. We're going to look at three points. And, and the first point is going to deal with the past with our past, if you're, in, if you're a believer, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, uh, you're a Christian. And then the second two points are going to deal with the here and now. Okay, so that we're going to deal with the past and then the present. So let's start off by looking at the past. And that is found in the opening words, there is therefore. Therefore, there is therefore And here's what we see. God has addressed and dealt with our past. God has addressed in this verse and in what precedes it, he has addressed and dealt with our past. When, as Paul is prone to do, he likes to do, we find it throughout his writing, when he comes to a a major uh, bridge In Scripture, he uses the word therefore. And so he uses it here to to initially point us to what he he has just written. And I think in this case, it, it, you know, some commentators think it's just in the previous verses at the end of chapter 7. But I tend to think, uh, I agree with those who believe that it's it's more panoramic. It's an overall look at what it is he has written, what it is he says that he is not ashamed of, the good news. He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew and to the Gentile. And how many weeks have we looked at the first seven chapters of this book and we've, we've been reminded that he makes this statement that he's not ashamed of the good news, and then he, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, he shows us the bad, he tells us the bad news, right? And so in those first seven chapters, it's a lot of bad news. Um, It's a big picture view of humanity's plight, of your plight and my plight. Our fall and the depth of our fall. Just how dark that fall is. In chapter 1, he he points out that we are all sinners. And as a result, 
we move away from God. That's part of the effect of sin. It not only, just in one sin, it, it takes us, it moves us away from God as, as we sin. Because in our sin, in essence, what we say to the Lord is, I know better than you. I know what's best for me. I know what I want. And even though you say, do this, I don't want to do that. Or even though you say, don't do this, it is bad for you. Trust me, have faith in me. No, I'm going to do it anyway. Because I would rather trust me. I think there's more joy, there's more satisfaction, there's more sweetness, there's more benefit to me if I go my way instead of your way, God. And so when I sin, there's a step away. When I sin again, there's another step away. And Paul speaks of that. And, and as a matter of judgment, um, he tells us still in chapter 1 that God pulls the restraints off of our sinful slide into depravity. That he, he gives us over those in the, into the wickedness of, of man in our ungodliness, in our unrighteousness. He gives us over to the not just continual sin, but into this slide into the enjoyment and allowing sin to be the predominant factor in our lives, right? And in that, all the while, God is there, right? I mean, he is not, he is not made the final cut, uh, the final sever between his chief of creation, man, and the creator, God himself. He, 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 he remains there, which is an, in and of itself an act of grace, right? And let me give you an example, because I, th I, think, I think there's something very current that we can, we can identify as you go back and you read Romans 1. If you recall our study of Romans 1, particularly that second half of Romans 1. We know this. We know that God loves all people, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. And that includes those men and women who identify, here's the current example, those men and women who identify as LGBTQ, all right? And, and P.S., he loves them as should we, his church, right? I mean, we, we are sinner. We are, by definition, by, by nature, we are like all man is, whoever, however you identify, we are sinners. But the, the, using this example, the response of so many um, in the homosexual, in the transgender movement, although not all, we, we have to be fair, but the response of so many, and certainly in, our, in the predominant media that pushes this, in the predominant, predominant uh, corporate culture that we live in, um, this is not just set on the table, but it is pushed across the table into our faces uh, so that we, um, we see people not only 
practice sin and a sinful lifestyle, but take pride and celebrate that sin. They celebrate their lostness. Just June in our country and across the world is what? Five years ago, you may not have known this, 10 years ago, most of us didn't realize this, but you can't, you can't turn on the TV or pick up a, a, a magazine or go online without realizing that June is Pride Month. And the implication is we are to take pride in those that ultimately, if you understand Scripture, are flaunting their sin, not just in our face. I mean, that's, that may make you uncomfortable. It may disturb you. And if you're a Christian, rightly so. But what, they, what is happening is they are flaunting that sin in the face of God. It's Pride Month. Let's take pride in this sin. Now, if you're heterosexual or you are not a part of the LGBTQ movement, you might be going, well, Steve, that's not me, right? But how many movies have you watched? How many books have you read? How many jokes have you told that flaunt and celebrate sin? They are sexual uh, sexual nature or violent in nature that flaunts in the very face of God his truth, his word, and we do it anyway. And we celebrate it. And we put it out there on the table. So chapter 1 is a, a deep dive into man's deep dive into depravity. All right, then you move into chapter 2. Uh, we won't spend as much time in these next couple of chapters. In chapter 2, we be, it, before we begin pointing our fingers at the lostness of others, Paul tells us that um, separation from God is endemic for all people. Jews, Gentiles, religious, non-religious, those that read the Bible, those that are pagan in nature, um, we're all separated from God. And he moves into chapter 3 and he, he writes that unless something happens in a person's life, any person, because lostness and sin is so universal for all people, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are without hope unless something outside of ourselves happens to us. He tells us in chapter 3 that none of us seek God, that not one of us is righteous. There's not one of us that does good or wants to do good. But finally, <laughs> finally, in the middle of chapter 3, in the, in the midst of all that, it, and it really is despair, um, he holds out this amazing truth. And I'm just going to read it because it's so significant. In verse 21 of chapter 3, he writes, But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, the significance of that is, if you remember, in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? And then he, that's when he begins that, that deep dive. And he begins to write about just how dark that is. And now like a, a cup of cold water to a dying person in the desert, he holds it out and he says, but now the righteousness of God. Because everything before that has been... How can an individual, how can a man or a woman be found right before God? And Paul's, example, Paul's answer is, there's nothing in you that can pr promote or present righteousness before God. Because nobody wants to be right before God. You'd, you would rather go your way than be found right before God. But as Job asked the question thousands of years earlier, eventually a man We'll ask, how can I be found right with God? And now Paul begins his answer in chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And he goes on to say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So, beginning there in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 6, Paul goes on this incredible couple of chapters of how God declares guilty people not guilty in Christ. When, when a person in faith turns and trusts Christ, they, God declares, he justifies them. He declares them not guilty. It's a beautiful trip through chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, which should be freshest to us, uh, before we took this break, a couple of weeks break from Romans, uh, he shows us why we, though we have been saved and are in Christ, we've been justified, we've been declared not guilty in Christ, why do we struggle so much with sin? He uses himself as an example at the second half of chapter 7, and it culminates um, in verse 24 by you can almost picture Paul reaching up his hands and crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Remember we said he cries out like that as a Christian, as a believer, as someone who has been justified in Christ, but it is just a reflection of his struggle. He wants to obey God. He wants to do right, but there's something there that at times, not always, but at times prevents him from doing right. Who will deliver him? And he gives us a preview of coming attractions in the first part of verse 25 when he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we did that, we did that look back at the first seven chapters because that is our past. 
That is our past. It's my past. It's your past. It may be, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then that, that second half of those chapters, from chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 7, doesn't really apply to you because you remain in those first couple of chapters of Romans. Your, your journey into darkness and into sin you remain in, you're living in, you're watching me, you're listening to me, and you're sitting just as I once did, and as all men once did, you're sitting in your sin. But you don't have to. You don't have to. So Paul acknowledges our past. There is, therefore, based on what everything I, we just looked at, there is therefore now, Wow, this is a powerful statement. There is therefore now present. There is no condemnation. Our current status in Christ, presently, today, there is no condemnation. Um, someone, I'm just, I'm, I want to quote just some anonymous, some. Uh, some you'll recognize, some statements about this statement. Um, someone has said, this is the best news you will ever receive. There is now no condemnation. Someone else has, has written, often we make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is simply what we believe in order to be saved. We hear it, we believe it, and we are born again. Though we wouldn't say it this way, we often act like the gospel has no further relevance to us. It gets us in the door, so to speak, but it's not part of our daily life. Wow. If any verse screams and pushes against that, that's a, that's a true sentiment. Maybe that's you. You look back. However long ago, six months, six years, 60 years ago, you gave your life to Jesus. You, you ask him, and that's what you, how you view your, your salvation. But Paul says here, there is therefore now, today, no condemnation. Martin Luther wrote in his lectures to, on Romans, quote, to progress is always to begin again. In other words, transformation, walking with Jesus, means there is um, a daily movement. There's a daily going forward, and, and there's a daily going backward. We start over, and then we start over again, and then we start over again. There is now no condemnation. I can't, I can't stress the, the significance of that word now. Ba with, with everything understood, is as, if, as if Paul is saying, with everything understood about our past, about where we've been, now... Today, there is no condemnation. And guess what? That truth will be true when you wake up tomorrow. You can claim that same guarantee. Just as there was yesterday no condemnation, there is today 
no condemnation. This truth, I really believe, should rock you and me to our core in its relevance, in its pertinence to our lives today. This is an ancient truth that is just as fresh in 2023 as it was when Paul wrote it. And it will be just as fresh 2,000 years from now. There is therefore now no condemnation. Doctrinally, doctrinally, theologically, God does not condemn you. God does not. The greatest judge, the ultimate judge that we all face and will stand before, he does not condemn you. And what that means is he will not condemn you. And some of you are thinking, yes, Steve, I understand what I deserve Eternal separation from God, hell, in all of its horror. I just, that's what I deserve. I get those first six chapters of Romans. I get it. I know that's what I deserve. And I understand that when Christ died on the cross and when I looked at him and by grace through faith, God's grace through my faith trusted him. I understand that he forgave me. And I understand that when he saved me, I was not condemned. But man, I look back at the things I've done. I'm afraid of the things I will do. And I'm just not certain he's not going to eventually say enough. I, I do condemn you all over again. Now think of the implication of that. Think of the implication. If Jesus was to condemn us sometime in the future, or if he was to condemn us, although we stood condemned apart from Christ, if in Christ and through his work on the cross, he was somehow afterwards to find, uh, find condemnation in us, the implication is he would have, in order for us to no longer be condemned, he would have to go back to the cross. What we're ultimately doing is we are, we are finding fault with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross where there is no fault. God does not condemn you. God will not condemn you. Practically, in our everyday lives, it means I no longer have to, I no longer have to play religious games. If you're a believer... Yeah, you know, there are, there are probably many games, but I can think of two games that we often play as, as Christians. There is what we'll call the achievement game, where we try to earn enough brownie points um, before God. We try to earn enough brownie points before others. We want the applause of other people. Um, we try to reach a career level where everybody will go, ooh, look at them. We try to reach a spiritual, um, uh, a, a, a spiritual giant level where those in the church and those around us will go, oh, look how much he or she loves God. We, we live 
for the applause of others, the, we, we, the achievement game. And then we try to manage that, right? We achieve it, and then we try to manage it. We, we have to keep it going, moving. It's a game we play. Uh, uh, another game we play is the acting game, where we pretend we have it all together. We look the part in public, we act the part we seem like, okay, I've got this. Others think I have this. But in reality, we don't have it all together. You know, I, it is just a truth. It's a reality that uh, you can watch a person and you can think you know a person. But when that person gets into their home or their apartment, wherever they live, and they shut that door, you don't know what goes on behind those doors. You don't know what goes on in the heart of an individual. But we do know this, God knows. God knows. Um, so there is, therefore, now, no condemnation. Now, here's, here's, here's the second aspect of there being no condemnation. Uh, dealing with our present, dealing with today and as we said also our future but primarily today there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and here's the point salvation is Christ specific salvation and and thus living without being condemned living with no condemnation is Christ specific. It's not across the it's not across the board. This is not a religious truth or a principle. It's a truth, but it's not a religion. It's not true for every faith, for every religion. It's not true for all men and women. It is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. And that kind of brings, brings I think, us to a, a good, safe place to stop for today as we'll, it'll move us into our next few verses for next time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's very Christ-specific. So it begs the question, do you know Jesus Christ? Are you in Christ Jesus? If the answer to that question is no, not, and, and, and you answer it honestly. I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you believe the Bible. I'm not asking you if you watch uh, other pastors, other services, other online services. I, I'm not asking any of that. Not even asking you if you do morally good things. I'm asking you, have you repented from your sin? And in faith, trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, His work that He accomplished on the cross, buried, His resurrection, His fact that He lives today. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, the Lord of your life? Do you defer to Him? Do you live before Him? Sadly, if not, the answer is the answer for you is then 
you live under condemnation. The good news is, the good news is that you don't have to. Is that God in his infinite mercy and grace invites you to himself, but he invites you. There's one way. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's one way, and that's through Jesus. I wonder if you would come to him. Maybe now. Maybe you need to turn, turn me off and you just need to get on your knees and you need to ask Christ to save you and, and, and to be your Savior and to live without any condemnation. Pray with me and we'll be closed. Father, how good you are and how good you are to give us your word. I pray for each person that is watching and listening that that um, they would taste and see that you, Lord, you are good. And that you give us yourself. And that in Christ we stand. Today, you've dealt with our past. And today, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. Bless these that are, that are a part of this service. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. Hey, we really do value you. Appreciate you being with us. Stick with us. We're about to close out this service with a, 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 a song of worship. And I will look forward to being with you next time. God bless.